Hey everybody, welcome to a brand new episode of the Power Slam podcast here on Patreon a day early and ad-free or a day later wherever you get your podcast. My name is Kenny McIntosh and I'm joined as always by Mr. Finley Martin, thing of the figurative Power Slam. Finn, how are you today? Yeah, I'm pretty good, Kenny. Yeah, I'm all right. How's yourself? Good, yeah. Can't complain. Very happy. So looking forward to talking about wrestling again. Um, I actually just finished yesterday my... Uh, completing the transcript of my interview with Evan Husney of Dark Side of the Ring, the next issue of the magazine. So Ah, I'm very happy with that. And I got a text message from our editor um, with the response, that Dark Side interview is fucking brilliant. I thought, well, good. That's a a good endorsement of of happiness. So, yeah, I, I think people will like it. I tried to kind of go into details about why they do things in the show. And why things are the way that they are, and kind of get a bit of a different slant on it. Give so, us an example, Kenny, of that. So an example is, you know, right the 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 reenactment scenes that they do in Dark Side of the Ring. You know, obviously they're a very important part of the show. I said, where did that come from? Where was the inspiration? And he talks about, you know, a famous documentary from the eighties called The Thin Blue Line by Errol Morris, and that really it was like a tr- true crime thing, and that really influenced them and how they did it. Um, and, you know, initially, obviously, they did a Bruiser Brody documentary, which was what it originally was, and then it morphed into uh, the series. So we kind of go into all that, and we talk, I ask them about, you know, I ask Evan about, you know, the criticism from Plain Ride from Hell, the criticism about, you know, they cover very negative things in the wrestling business. How did they get Martha Hart on board? Um, Cornette being a contributor. So, yeah, lo- lots of different stuff. I think people will enjoy it. So I just finished that yesterday. Um, which is it's always quite daunting when you when you do an interview and, and you know, it comes out and it's like, oh there's you know there's seven and a half thousand words you need to get it down to five and you need to make sure it makes sense and it's a yeah I think it's a process that until you've done something like that, you you really gain a respect for people like like you who've done it for years and make it look so effortless so um, yeah I think people will enjoy it so yeah well well I mean the clues in the title isn't it dark side of the ring yeah so I mean they're not going to be talking about Fields of daffodils, are they? You know, boom time, or yeah, everything's wonderful, and we were making all this money, and all oh, the matches were great, and everybody was tuning in, and blah blah blah. The clues in the title, Dark Side of the Ring, of course, the series um, is all about the bad things that have happened in wrestling and um, the tragedies that have befallen wrestling and people in the business. Um, so, uh, and you know, it's like, you know, you, you watch TV and there's like true crime channels, isn't it? Is it Sky Crime? Yeah, yeah, Sky Crime. I've watched a lot of stuff on that. And it's just I'm... documentaries on killers or people who've done terrible things. Yeah. I mean, and we, and we did, we did, we did. On, on people who've done amazing things for charity. There's very few documentaries on them. 
Yeah. Well, it's funny because we do actually, I don't want to give too much away, we do, initially it was not maybe called Dark Side of the Ring. So he kind of goes into that and talks about how that's maybe, you know, put them in a certain bracket, you know, that maybe they wouldn't have been in had that not been the name of it. Um, but, you know, the, he, ta- he talks about it, he talks about, you know, we are, we are basically a true crime documentary series with wrestling stories. You know, that's basically the job. So I, I think people will enjoy it. And we we actually will, you and I then will be talking about the, the Chris Candido Tammy Sitch episode on the overrun this week. So people can check that out and talk about that. Um, I did just want to uh, mention, now we're, we're not really going to talk about in, to do with Dynamite to because Finn's not seen it. I have seen the MGF Adam Cole promo. So I'll be interested on Tuesday when we do what's going down to see what Finn thinks of it. It's not been very well received. <laughs> by 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 very pro AEW groups, and you know not just not just kind of people who dislike everything that they do, but people yeah. who like it. There's not really been uh, complimentary gushing with praise. No, they've not been. And I think the thing with with MGF that that is difficult for him is that when you become the champion, you know, then it's kind of like you know before he was champion, he was working with all these huge names who were basically making him a bigger star. Yeah, and that was the and now you know the buck stops with him. He's the guy that's got to make the challengers feel like a bigger star. And if yeah. you're going to if you're going to compare yourself even in character to Flair or Piper, well, you need to really be making people. And that's it. The shoes on the other foot, and it's like, well, it's your job to make your challengers seem like a threat. And if you are not doing that, then you are failed as a champion. It's that simple. I mean, we need to believe that that challenger can beat you or could beat you. Yeah. Um, running that challenger down and belittling that challenger. I don't really, I mean, I get the point because it's he's seeking heel heat. So he's seeking the booze. So he wants to ridicule and belittle his opponents. And, you know, theoretically, that leads to a groundswell of, groundswell of support for them to put MGF in his place. So that's his character and that that's his strategy, isn't it? But if you are making people think that the challenger is not worthy, then you have you you have not succeeded in your in your role as a challenger. Sorry, in a role as a champion to promote this challenger as a threat to your title and you know prom- promoting this match as the as something that people want to pay to see. So there's a fine line, isn't there, between knocking your opponent um, and just rubbishing him. And I think MGF does that too much we've seen it many times before where he comes out there and he's that's his shtick isn't it he's like the stand-up comedian who insults his audience and that's his role and that's what he does but i don't think it's really conducive to making people you know enthusiastic and you know hell-bent on seeing his title defenses i mean i didn't sense there was that much of an appetite for his title match at double or nothing I mean, that that segment he did on the Dynamite before the pay-per-view, it didn't really feel like any of his, there was a huge amount of support for any of his challengers to beat him. That was, you know, that was the sentiment and the emotion I took from it. It just felt like MGF was the star and all these people didn't really belong in the ring with him and weren't really a threat to him. And on the night, they weren't. So... Which is a shame because because he you know he did say in the promo last night you know he he did have a, a phenomenal Iron Man match with Dan, with Brian Danielson he did have a great four way with those guys at Double or Nothing so he's fine in these matches but 
when you're champion, you do also need to kind of be making other people as well. You know, it's like Gunther. When Gunther is in there with Mustafa Ali, who is as cold as ice water as a character, and when Gunther's in there with him, Gunther makes him look like... And now, obviously, Gunther's not doing promos, but I assume if he... I think if Gunther was doing promos, he would not be out there basically saying, you're a jobber. <laughs> yeah, Ali. exactly. Um, so, but um, I did want to ask you, because this isn't really Dynamite news, um, but Tony Khan did announce... There was another announcement on last night's Dynamite. He did announce that um, the main event of the first Collision show is going to be CM Punk and FTR taking on... Bullet Club Gold, which is Jay White and Just Robinson, and Samoa Joe. Now, we had talked last week about how potentially a six-man tag would be a match at Forbidden Door, and that would be the first time we would see Punk in action, but they are giving it away on night one of Collision. How do you feel about it, Tim? Um, I mean, I'm sure this is, this is to kick things off with a bang, right? So, I, in a sense, I understand the mentality or the reasoning behind this. It's like, let's book a big six-man match that everyone will want to tune in to see. So week one, we need to draw a big number. So I think that's the motivation behind this. Would you agree with that, Kenny? Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think that's the idea is let's load it up so that people really check out Collision and we get a big number the first night. Yeah. But to me, week one, we know it's in Chicago. I think people are are actually more interested in what CM Punk has to say than what he's going to do in the ring, because we sort of know what he's going to do in the ring. But I want to hear that promo. I want to hear him address why he's been absent since September. He needs to talk about it to some extent. He needs to give people some explanation. And it needs to be, it doesn't need to be the truth. And it doesn't need to be a, a totally honest explanation of what happened, but he needs to give some people something that they can believe in. So there needs to be some acknowledgement of what happened in September and why he's been gone for so long. So I would rather that Punk on his first week back did the promo. And I think, and just really set out his stall for what he hopes to achieve this time around. I think that would be sufficient. I think people would tune in for that. So to me, that should be week one. Week two, I would book Punk to come out again and then for FTR to join him midway through the promo and for them to, you know, talk about how much they respect each other and we're glad you're back and, you know, it's good to have you and, hey, you know, cheers, yeah, six-man, you know, faction, you know, the the makings of a faction um, has been laid out and, yeah, these three guys are going to team together. Backstage, we could potentially then have, like, Samoa Joe or... Juice Robinson or Jay White watching backstage. I mean, we haven't had an explanation yet, you know, for why Samoa Joe's teaming with Jay White and Juice Robinson. No, this is the this is the first. So this is, yeah, this union has just suddenly been manufactured without any explanation. So that could be week two. You know, week three, you then have the confrontation between FTR and CM Punk and Juice Robinson and Jay White, and then perhaps there's a scuffle or a kickoff, and then Samoa Joe runs out and he attacks CM Punk. The heels would leave the faces laying. Week four, you give them the match. To me, that's the story. And I think there'd be a hell of a lot more interest in the match if it was built up over three weeks and then delivered on week four. I mean, there's, he, no, he, he, reason, to, there's no reason for them to rush this. No, I mean, to, pl- to play devil's advocate, let's say that the six-man, whether it's Samoa Joe or not, let's say the six-man had to take place at Forbidden Door. 
for example. And we've got we've got the June seventeenth collision and the June twenty fourth, and then twenty fifth is Forbidden Door. You still could do the promo in the first week, and maybe FTR joining him at the end of that promo, and then on the twenty fourth, and then have them get attacked or something, and then the twenty fourth you confirm the match, and then you do it on the twenty fifth. That still gives you a little bit of build, not as good yeah. as good as four weeks, but. Something I just think giving away that six man tag on the first episode, you're just, you're kind of wasting what would be a big moment of you know his first match on Collision. Yeah, and it's just away. you're not telling a story, and that's what's missing from AEW stories with depth. Everything's so superficial. There's lots of matches, and um, but the stories just don't have substance to them, and um, it just seems like. Such a, a blown opportunity. But to me, CM Punk first week back, he should be doing promo on the promo only because we want to know why he's been gone since September or, you know, or the storyline version of that, you know, in, including some elements of truth um, before he then forms a six-man or a faction or six-man team or the faction with FTR leading to the match with Robinson, Jay White and Samoa Joe. It just... It's just been rushed. It's just, it's yeah, just it's typical AEW, basically, Kenny. You know, I, th- I think I said this on Tuesday or last week. It was on one of the podcasts. I kind of said that you know one of the things that I struggle with sometimes with like, the elite storyline is the is is the lack of is like telling is more of a story. And it's like with Hangman Page and Kenny Omega reuniting. It's like give us a promo with them. Give us a promo where they explain. And we know the answer because we can see the show. But like tell us. Have them explain to each other why they're on the same side, or you know, hash out their differences or whatever it would be, rather than just a moment in a match or a moment during a run-in where they look at each other and it's like, oh, we're on the same page. Like, yeah. you know, that's a year they fought at Full Gear twenty twenty one. Was it? I think it was. I think it was Full Gear twenty twenty one. Was when Omega and yeah, it was because then Page won the title at Full Gear twenty twenty one. And then you had the series with Danielson late 2021, early 2022. Yeah. So, you know, that's how long they've been at odds. So, you know, you want to give a big segment to that. So, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the, the MGF and Cole segment on Tuesday once you have seen it. Um, backstage at Raw this week, Finn, was one Vince McMahon in Hartford, Connecticut. He was there. He was uh, making changes. Um Obviously, Hartford Hartford is very close to Stanford, so you know it's not yeah. a long trip for him to get there. Um, in terms of Vince being back, when you when when you heard that he was going to be back um, a few months ago, has it panned out the way that you thought it would? Did you expect him to be more involved than he is? Did you expect him to be at more shows than he has been at? Um, and how do you feel about the idea of him kind of remotely? I guess making some changes, but it doesn't feel like he's making loads. It doesn't feel like we're getting a full Vince show anymore. It, um, I mean, it seems to have sort of passed without incident. I mean, there was some drama and some complaints when he re- when we learned back in January, early January, that he was returning, and um, most people assumed that you know when he added himself to the board of directors that he would have. There'll be some sort of comeback as part of creative or management, you know, in terms of hands-on, not just being, you know, corporate and executive and being involved in negotiations for the media rights fees. So I think most of us sort of assume that this would happen. Um, 
I mean, it doesn't really seem to be a big thing to me because it feels to me like it's still the Paul Levesque show. When I'm watching Raw or SmackDown, it most of it makes sense. I mean, the thing that always, to me, characterised Vince McMahon's booking was things stopping and starting and things just changing for no reason because of it was based on his whims. And you had this sort of fickle booking approach without a sort of long-term story-based, consistent, you know, episodic week-to-week approach, except for in certain big storylines that Vince would put, you know, 85% of his creative time and energy into, whether it was Cena or Roman Reigns or whomever. So I don't really, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I think this is going to happen. And I think as long as he's around, it's he's always going to tinker with certain things. I think that's to be expected. I don't think there's anything on Raw this week that really offended me. Um, I think you see, was, the, the one thing I think you can see that, that, is, that has got Vince's fingerprints over it is the kind of Otis, Chad, Gable, Maxine thing. But if, if Vince needs that to get by, give him it. Who cares? Well, exactly. I mean, to me, Alpha Academy have kind of done this face turn, which we could see coming some time ago. Um, Maxine Dupree's involved. I mean, you know, I, we don't. We, they're heading towards a six-person match, aren't they? Valhalla and Viking Raiders versus Chad Gable, Otis, and Maxine. And she is a wrestler, and she's been trained. We don't know how good she is, um, and how will she be on the main stage? Because that's very different to. NXT or NXT level up or the indie circuit or, you know, having a match in front of the agents, having a match in front of, you know, crowd in a huge arena on live TV, that's a different level of pressure. And some people don't cope cope with it very well. And Valhalla as well. I mean, there's a huge question mark as to what she can do in the ring these days. I mean, I never really thought she was that good to begin with, Um, but she's been... She hasn't wrestled on... Has she wrestled on TV since she returned? I don't think she has. I don't think she has. I think she's done a couple of kind of physical moments, but I don't think she's wrestled since she came back, no. So, I mean, a little comedy thing like that, I mean, you know, I have no objection to that at all. I mean, I find find the Alpha Academy very entertaining. I'm a big fan of their act. You know, I just wish they were doing more than they were. And you know what? If Vince spearheads that, then I'm all for it. I'm all for his participation. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can get annoyed about in pro wrestling. There's a lot of confected outrage about things. And certainly in 2023, just in life in general, people just seem to be, you know, permanently on grievance mode. And I'm just refusing to allow this to bother me, Kenny, until (laughs) he does something that really upsets me. And that hasn't happened yet. And I'm not saying it won't, because it probably will, but until it does, I'm keeping an open mind. Yeah, it's kind of like the idea of you just you just don't want to know that the bad stuff is going to happen yeah. if it's not happened yet. You want to wait. I mean, to me, it's like, you know, Vince Vince has always done the thing of the short guy and the fat guy and the hot woman. He's all, he always does that kind of stuff. Mm. So, and that's fine. If, if that's what he's, I would much rather that's where he has his input more than him changing things up the card. Because, you know, the, the bloodline stuff is an example. If that was Vince, there is no way, you know, people could say, well, you, you don't know. Yes, you do. You can watch this show for years and you can understand. There is no way the bloodline stuff would have played out the way it has under Vince McMahon's watch of old. There's just no way. There's no way it would have had the cohesion, the, the storytelling wouldn't make anywhere near as much sense. Um, 
So I think that's a combination. He just wouldn't have had the patience, would he, to just develop? Because it's a real slow developer. Yeah. And, you know, that's probably probably part of that is Triple H, part of that is Heyman, part of that is Roman. You know, there's lots of different people at play, probably. So, you know, it's like, I always remember RVD said a thing before, and uh, it was on the One Night Stand documentary, or the, the Rise and Fall of ECW. It was something where he was talking about One Night Stand, and he was saying that Heyman would come in uh, and said it might have been Tommy Dreamer, Tommy Dreamer or RVD, one of the two. Heyman came in and said they've got ten bad ideas, but I've managed to get it down to only using three of the bad ideas. Um, when they were trying to put this one night stand show together, and that's kind of what it is with Vince. I imagine is that he will want to make a lot of changes, but it's kind of going right. Okay, let's give them this couple so we can keep all the other stuff. And if they can keep that balance, then I think we'll be in a pretty good place. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I mean. The fact that he's backstage in Hartford, to me, isn't really much of a concern. It's like 30 minutes down the road, so of course he's going to be there. If he starts turning up at like every show, then then we're probably in a bit of trouble. But, I mean, he is approaching 80, and you would think if he was going to come back and do what he used to do, he would just come back and do it. Like, I I don't think there's really, regardless of whether morally we like it or like him or think he should be you know at an office where he was accused of mass sexual harassment um he's back he's in a position of power so if he really wanted to just go back and do what he was doing before he would yeah absolutely he could do that next week yeah there's he nothing, could. nothing to stop him from doing that he's proven that he is the power player and um but i mean i just i think he's i think he's content to be back in the mix and to, you know, I think he's probably more interested right now in this media rights deal, which is something that I'm sure is inspiring him no end. I think he's got a lot of confidence in Paul Levesque. He always has had, or at least he has had since the 2000s. Um, So I think he's just letting him get on with it. And you you look at that number that SmackDown drew last week and, you know, huge demos. And Vince is thinking, well, you know, it's going really well right now. You know, I'm just going to stand back. And if things fall apart, then maybe I'll get involved. You know, but at the moment, it's going pretty well. Um, I'm just going to just tinker around with a few little things just to keep myself in, you know, in, in the picture. Um, and just to remind people that I'm I'm still the man <laughs> if I want to be. Mm. Uh, but I think he's overall pleased. I think overall he's pleased with the direction of the company. You can see so many things are set up so well for the future. And that there will be reason enough for Vince to not meddle um, in any sort of mean, in any way that's going to disrupt the plans. Because, you know, Vince, well, Vince obviously knows what's going to happen. But we as observers, we can see where it's all going. Yeah. And it all looks really solid. In fact, it looks better than solid, some of the stuff. So I just think they've got, you know, they've got a plan. They know where they're going. And I think Vince is pleased with that. He's pleased with the numbers that it's delivering. And, you know, and until things change, he'll stand back, you know, and just allow them to get on with it. Yeah. And I think the, the other thing is, I mean, if he's appro- approaching 80 and, you know, he, he got off the, the wheel for a while, he might just not want to fully get back on the wheel again. Like he might not want, like, does he really want to be traveling every week? to two different cities and put himself back into what he was doing before? Probably not. Like I'm sure he wants to, to have the final say 
you know, nothing nothing is getting approved without him agreeing to it. But yeah, maybe he's laid back a little bit now, which is weird to think about. But yeah, maybe also- I, I mean, I'm, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, you know, that article I wrote in the latest issue of Inside Ropes magazine on Gunter. Yeah. That was the first time I'd done that sort of article in the magazine in a long time. Yeah. And I found that really difficult. I was like, wow, you know, I used to do these every month. It's like, <laughs> and I was like, and I was pleased with the way it came out. I thought it was, you know, I thought it was, you know, good. I thought it was well done, but it took me a long time to put that article together. And I was just like, wow, you know, <laughs> I forgot <laughs> how difficult it is to do, to write stories to this level um, for a magazine. And um, yeah, sometimes you sort of think, yeah, it's sort of easier just <laughs> sometimes to, uh, you know, not that I'm phoning it in on the magazine or anything like that, but there are just uh-huh. certain things that are really quite challenging. I'm glad I did it and I'm looking forward to doing another, but it's like that part of my brain hadn't really been active for a while. Yeah, And uh, maybe when Vince returns, it's like, wow, this is, this is a lot of work. You know, this is a lot of stuff to consider. And, um, you know, you can drive yourself crazy with all the things you've got to, that's going through your mind. Maybe it's just thinking, you know, I'm going to stand back. I'm going to let Paul do it. He's younger than me. He's always wanted this job. He's doing a good job as well. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to have a little go and a little, you know, make a suggestion here and there. But apart from that, I'm just going to let those guys get on with it. Well, before we go, uh, we also, we should obviously bring up yesterday, the Iron Sheep passed away, age 81. Um and the Megan brothers, who were kind of his uh, media people, had put a you know a big statement out about him on social media. Yeah. Um. Iron Sheik, where where does his where's his legacy in wrestling? What is his legacy in wrestling? Do you think? Because obviously in the later years he became this kind of comedy character on social media, um, and kind of almost had a wee resurgence through that. But uh, what's what's the legacy of Iron Sheik? Do you think? He he was as a wrestler. He was before my time. Um, I mean, I, you know, when I started watching American wrestling in 88, he was certainly not the force that he had been. Um, I mean, we all know him as the person who ended Bob Backlund's title reign, WWF title reign in December 83. And he was the uh, caretaker champ for a month. And he was the guy who put Hogan over in January of 84. Um, So that's how I always remember him. Um, I mean, in later years, he did the foreign heel. I mean, he was the foreign heel, wasn't he? You know, that's how who he was in the 70s, in the AWA. Yeah. He actually, if you actually look down his um, match history, he wrestled everywhere. He wrestled for the AWA, wrestled in like Mid-South, Mid-Atlantic, Georgia, WWF. He had that run in WCW in like, was it 89? Then he went back to WWF in 91 to team with Sergeant Slaughter when Slaughter did his, you know, anti-American Iraqi sympathizer gimmick. And, um, I mean, no one, because he was from Iran, wasn't he? The Iron Sheik. Yeah, yeah, he was. And then he was an Iraqi sympathizer. I mean, no one seemed that bothered about it at the time, which was just weird, wasn't it? That's just weird, isn't it, when you think about it? I mean, this is wrestling, though, isn't it? And it's like, nowhere does it say that things have to make sense. (laughs) (laughs) because so often they don't um and yeah you're right in later years he became this you know he appeared on howard stern and like just to be and that was just weird and then he became this sort of vulgar 
um, Twitter personality who just swore all the time. And I like, I mean, we did like um, a shoot interview with, um, I think, was it with New Jack and Honky Tonk Man? Yep. And yep. he, and like, didn't he like, didn't he like pull his pants down and he had to digitize the screen? Am I remembering that correctly, Kenny? I think you're right. I don't think I don't think I've I've heard about that. I don't think I've seen it, but I've definitely heard something where he does that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I interviewed him once in 2012, and I remember because he he had a, an agent called Eric Sims. I think his name is, and uh, I think and I, I think Eric Sims was was actually in the video and was the one who was tasked with pulling the Iron Sheiks your joggers back up. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. Well, because in 2012, Sheik was he was really becoming viral with all the the vulgar stuff on social media. So I'd reached out to Eric Sims and said, "Look, is there any chance I could get an interview with him?" So we managed to get an interview with him, um, which I never thought was going to happen. And I always remember Eric Sims because it was on video, and I I wasn't on video, so we just recorded the audio. But I always remember Eric Sims answered the the call and he had like a vest on and he had so much shoulder hair that it really made me feel quite ill because he just looked like he had a jumper on but it was just his hair and then he said here's Sheik and then Iron Sheik sat down and you can imagine the the language barrier between you know the 2012 me who hadn't developed the developed the way to slow my accent down and speak more clearly with the Iron Sheik so we spoke for 10 minutes. He could barely understand me. I could barely understand him. But um, yeah, I think it's actually up on our YouTube channel. But uh, yeah, he was he was nuts. But do you think do you think that him getting that transitional reign as WBF champion late 83 so that he could drop the belt to Hogan? I mean, he lived off that for the rest of his career. He really did. And it was only, well, what, well, two weeks yeah, if, if you go on his Twitter, um, you know, just I think it was about ten days ago. There's like a picture there, like of like Sheik and Hogan. You know, like you know who's <laughs> choose your favorite. You know, but choose wisely. And uh, I mean, yeah, it was just like knocking Hogan on on his Twitter all the time and referring to everyone as a jabroni and making people humble. And uh, I mean, it was really funny. Yeah, it was really. It was just I don't know. It was just. I mean, did he appear on the Jerry? I think he appeared on the Jerry Springer show one time, didn't he? I think didn't he? Things was he revealed as was it Pitbull 2's secret boyfriend or something like that? I'm googling it now. Iron Sheet Jerry Springer. He yeah, he was on the Jerry Springer show in 1999 uh, with Pitbull. Uh, with... Yeah, I think it was Pitbull Two. Yeah, from ECW. So um... I mean. Yeah, I mean, we all remember him from WrestleMania 17 when he was in the old-timers Battle Royal. And the story was that Sheik had to win because he couldn't take the bump out of the ring. I love the idea that, that there wasn't just the thought of, well, don't put him in it. But the thought was, because like, I mean, because I remember when he turned up at that Battle Royal and obviously we hadn't seen him in, in gear, in, no. in, in, in wrestling gear in years. And the gut that he had was just wild. I mean, it was so, he was so big. Yeah. If he, I mean, if he had tried to take that over the top rope bump, I mean, I don't think he would have lasted much longer. He was, because obviously they then had Slaughter given the Cobra clutch after the match as a way to kind of send the crowd home happy. But 
I mean, he was in amazing shape in the 70s. You look at photos of him in the 70s, uh-huh. and um, and he was just, apparently, he was one of the hardest trainers in the business. No one trained harder than him. And he was just this machine. And he did, like, the club's challenge, which um, was his gimmick that he would use when he went to a new territory uh, to show how strong he was. And uh, I think he was a very effective heel in his prime, um, I mean, I just sort of saw him when he was on the way down and he put the weight on and he'd obviously got a lot of problems with his knees and his mobility. And um, and the wrestling business had really moved on as well. And that anti-American heel, which had been very much in vogue in the 70s and first half of the 80s, his feud with Slaughter, I think, was huge hit in WWF um, after he dropped the belt. He just felt rather dated as an act. So, um, you know, I don't think I really saw him in his prime. Um, and for me, he was a guy who who really became more of this sort of, you know, curious character in his later years. And I think he did quite well out of it. I don't think he, I'm not sure if he was being exploited by people around him. I get the impression that he, I think he was just amused by it all, the things that he said and did. I mean, I could be wrong about that. Oh no, but apparently, because apparently the the Megan twins, who are the guys who also represent Virgil as well, their dad, like I think in some way grew up with Iron Sheik, so they were very close to him, and I think that was how why they kind of, because uh, I think I think they were trying to help him make some money, and I think he yes, made, he made some money later on. Because I don't think he would have got a lot of convention appearances had he not been the foul mouthed old vulgar guy. Yeah. Um. Which he did, and then he, because I think there was a story yesterday saying that Howard Stern had actually paid him like twenty five hundred dollars. Yeah. Um. When Stern didn't usually pay people, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting. It's I mean, I I I feel like I know way more way more of him than I should for someone who's before my time, but that probably speaks to how sort of batshit he was towards the end. That yeah, because I always remember my first introduction to him. Well, no, it took me years to know that Iron Sheik and Colonel Mustafa was the same person because I'd seen Colonel Mustafa a couple of times in 92 and the big SummerSlam match in 91. And then I just never put it together. It was only when he came back, I think in 99, when he did that thing with him and Bob Backlund and Dominic, Dominic Danucci trying to train Mick Foley. And I, I remember at that point, going, that's, that's Colonel Mustafa. So he had that he had that run as well, but um, yeah, I mean, because he went to the Olympics for Iran, was it Iran? Yeah, yeah, it was Iran. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Did he go to the Olympics or did he try out for the team? I'm not sure if he went or, or was part of the team. But then he moved to America in, I think, the early seventies. Yeah, he debuted wrestling debut was 1973. Yes. Um, so he competed for a spot. On I on Iran's uh, Greco-Roman wrestling team for the '68 Summer Olympics, then moved to the US, became assistant coach for two US Olympic squads, um, and then he became the assistant coach for the USA team in the 1972 Olympics. So that's yeah, and that brought him to the attention of Vern Gagne of the AWA. Yeah, he loved to recruit like you know real athletes, particularly real amateur wrestlers. Uh, you know, he went through the same training camp as Ric Flair, I believe. Yeah, Flair made his debut in December '72, so um, yeah, Iron Sheik was around then, and yeah, as you said, he made his debut in '73. 
So, but yeah, it was it was a huge success, and in the business, there's no doubt about that. Wrestled all over the place. Um, I mean, there's a lot of stories about them about about Sheik that you can read. And um, I mean, we've talked about this before, haven't we, on this podcast, Kenny? Mm-hmm. WWE was going to release his autobiography, weren't they? But they yes, refused yes. to do so because there was too many. There would have been too many stories in there that would have been problematic for them. I'm going to try and say this as carefully as I. I don't know how, if I've ever said anything this before, but I'll try not to say much more. It was done. Well, the book has been written, a hundred percent, by someone we know. Um, but when the book was presented to WWE, the you know the, the sentiment was: if we release this book, it does not make us look good. No, you know him telling his stories of his life in the '80s and all the stuff that's gone on. It just wouldn't make the company look good. So sadly, there is this what I'm sure is a very entertaining book with a lot of kind of depth and nuance and stuff to it that we will never see because the person who wrote it has has written it, has been paid to write it. That's all fine, but WWE have chosen not to release it, and that's so it will just stay under lock and key, and it probably yeah. will never be released. So yeah, um, in which the, is... in the interests of national security. <laughs> uh, God. Anyway, okay. Well, listen, that's all. He was. I mean, he was the one who was famously travelling with Jim Duggan, wasn't he? Yeah, the famous uh, when they got busted for marijuana yeah. in 1987, when they were actually feuding with each other, which was this like <laughs> massive kayfabe violation that cost Duggan his job with WWF, and was this story that was reported endlessly, and people just used it to belittle the business and. You know, there was a lot of things with Sheik. Just a lot. I remember, I'm, I'm not even going to go into some of the stuff I've heard. I mean, you're yeah. just like, wow. You're just like, wow. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, because you, you look at people today, wrestlers today, and you, you see, and people get really upset at things that wrestlers do, which I'm not saying you shouldn't. But if you only knew what some of these wrestlers in the 80s did, you would be so horrified I'm not saying I am chic, but I'm just saying the general vibe in that era. I mean, the stories are just horrible, horrible. Yeah. But and and that behaviour was normalised. It yeah. was just like it was just seen as that's what you did. And um, yeah, yeah. But you know, happily, the world has moved on, Kenny. Yeah, and Iron Sheik, you know, he lasted to eighty-one, and that's a great run when you've lived through the eighties and you've lived through all the vices of the eighties. That you know, I'm sure he he went through, and a lot of other wrestlers went through. So, 81 is very good innings. So, um, that's all the time we've got for today. We'll be doing the overrun over on Patreon. We'll cover uh, the dark side of the ring. We'll be taking some questions. So, we hope you'll join us over there at patreon.com forward slash inside the ropes. And in the next few days, you'll be able to pre order issue 34 of Inside the Ropes magazine with uh, you know, Finn, Finn's QA and um, other bits and pieces that you'll be doing in there, Finn. Uh, the Dark Side of the Ring interview. Yeah, there's now there's a uh, Night of Champions review, Double Night or Nothing. Um, yeah. There's uh, your interview with Evan Dark, Side the, Dark Side of the Ring people. Uh, what else is an article on uh, title unifications in WWE? Too uh, hot or not? That's Story. it. Yeah, the uh, the AEW progress reports. Yes, see where people are sitting on the hotometer. So yeah, um, do go pre-order that. Um, 
and yeah, we do. Um, we've actually got a new we've got we've got a new customer service uh, person as well. So when you send your emails in, talk about subscriptions and stuff, you'll have somebody who can reply to you, you know, very quickly and sort out any issues. So um, at the editor at insidethelotusmagazine.com address. So we've got that being monitored way more frequently. So that'll be good for people who have got subscription questions. So yeah, do go check out the mag. Um, we wish that we could uh, make international postage faster, but you know, it's it's just not something we can at the moment. But uh, you know, there's always the digital copy as well uh, that goes out on the day of release, so you can check that out too on your tablet. Yeah. So isn't it weird how COVID is just like you know, put the boot into so many things in life. You know, just like yeah. who could have imagined that postage would be one of the casualties of COVID? Oh, it's, cr- it's crazy. You get people, you know, someone in Canada who'll say, you know, I've, I, I ordered my magazine a month ago and I've still not got it. And you're going, it's been sent. You know, there's yeah. nothing else you can do, but the, it's kind of the UK to US slash Canada postage. It's just awful. It's just really, really bad. And you'd hope that, they would have put some more money into making it better. but Yeah, I mean, back when I was running Power Slam, if you sent the magazine out on a Monday, it'd sometimes be there by the weekend. You'd have like a seven-day airmail service. I mean, mm-hmm. you could... Sometimes I remember sending stuff airmail, just standard airmail, and it'd get there in three days. And you just think, why is it not like that now? You know, I mean, it's just slowing everything up, isn't it? And it just discouraged people from using the postal service. So I yeah. just don't get it. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully one day there will there will come a day where there's a you know we can partner up with a US printer or something and make things easier. It's something we'd love to do. So you know, we can keep our fingers crossed. But until then, they will slowly make their way over to to the US and Canada. But um, yeah, anyway. Uh, do go check out the mag inside the magazine.com and yeah we will talk to you soon everybody tonight, if I'm sad tonight.